Today I'm talking to a publisher, to Eloise Miller, co-director of the small but mighty independent British publisher, Galley Beggar Press. Welcome, Ellie. Hi, lovely to be here. So let, let's start with the basics. Um, how long have you worked in publishing, roughly? Well, I have, um, I've worked, Galley Beggar has been going since, uh, um, its first book was in 2012, but really it's been going since 2011. Um, before that, I worked as a freelancer in academic publishing. It's from around 2005. And before that, um, I worked again and again for, on a fairly casual basis for The Guardian. Uh, so if you count newspapers, I've been, I've been going since uh, 2000, <laughs> I think. A little over 20 years then. That's That's a pretty big stint of time in the business thinking about the role of the publisher going back to the 15th century William Caxton was arguably the first British book publisher in that he decided what would be printed who would pay for it and he would pay for it and then he arranged for the books to be sold but on Wikipedia he is described as a merchant a printer and a diplomat so we've got three completely separate roles Galley Beggar is a really small press pretty much like Caxton's at the beginning. So how would you describe your work as a publisher? Because I imagine is it, well, I don't know, is it possible to separate out the roles of publisher from editor, from publicist and so on? I think it's very easy to separate out those roles if you're working at a bigger publisher. But um, for our own press and certainly with other small presses who I've met, those um, those roles become much more porous. So I, I maybe you can think of it as different hats. <laughs> you know, I'm wearing, just before I spoke to you, I had my editor hat on and I was checking off some proofreading comments for a, a, a manuscript uh, before it goes to, to print. So it's at galley stage. And I also undertake the publicity for Galley Beggar, which, uh, which I love. Um, and uh, and there are lots of other things as well. So, you know, there's kind of sales, distribution, uh, all of those things. But we're very small. There's just two of us. We have a great ancillary body of people who help us. We have a great typesetter, a great designer. We have a fantastic distributor. But, um, you know, Sam and I, who are the kind of core galley beggar people, we tend to kind of muck in on on pretty much everything. So what does the publisher's hat look like? Has it got feathers? <laughs> Is it velvet? <laughs> it's got a lot of feathers, <laughs> I would say. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly for a, for a, for a small press, um, it's pretty multifaceted hat. Have you read, um, there's a book by, um, I can't remember the, the author's name, I think it's Jonathan Krupp, Cowley mm -hmm. oh, it's called Little Big it's a fantasy book it's, it's really wonderful but it involves a house and from every angle it's a different type of house so you'll walk around it and at one point you know it can be Tudor and then you're around the corner and there's a Georgian bit and then there's another bit so maybe maybe that's uh maybe it's not a hat it's a house 
Good Lord. <laughs> okay, let's let's start drilling down a bit. Uh, I want to trace the processes that a publisher goes through when they start to consider a book for possible publication. And because I'm a publisher myself, I know that there are a huge amount of books that do not get anywhere near the publication stage. So what is your starting point? When are you first likely to come across a manuscript? Mm. Well, it's yeah, that's an interesting question because actually manuscripts have come to us in so many different ways. So we do have relationships with agents and we do get submissions from different literary agents. Um, and that, for example, is how Lucy Almond's Ducks New Report came to us. Um, for another book, uh, Pretty Teenagers with a Young, um, we got a knock on the door on our door, uh, our domestic door at seven o'clock in the evening from another press saying, please have a look at this book. Uh, we, you know, we're not big enough to publish this, but I really like you to have a read of it. So those are, those are two instances. Our writers also recommend uh, people that they really enjoy to us or, or get other writers to come our way. And we have an open window uh, which, in fact, we're currently in the process of reading. I think Sam and I have read something like 450 uh, submissions over the past six weeks. So that's that's amazing. And how long, what window of time did 450 manuscripts manage to squeeze into? Oh, it was for a month. Uh, Salby Wins-Swartz's After Sappho, uh, which uh, was amazingly lo long-listed for the Booker Prize last year and was shortlisted for the Orwell and is on the shortlist for the James Tate Black. Um, that was an open submission um, and actually sat in our open submissions because there's a lot of work to do, as you know, as a small press for, for nine months before we read it and, and we knew as soon as we started reading it and then we broke into a cold horrified sweat that we may have missed this beautiful <laughs> miserable piece of work oh my goodness so it was sitting waiting for a proper attention for nine months before you realize that this is actually the one my that's very worrying yeah <laughs> What might have happened to it? Might another publisher have snapped it up? Because do you do you have first refusal? I'm asking because some when when writers send in submissions, they are told only send one submission at a time, and if you if you don't do that, you must tell the publisher that you're sending multiple submissions. So did you think that Shelby would have agent might have been sending out the manuscript to other publishers at the same time? I think Shelby was, but I mean from our perspective. And I think Sam and I have, you know, this isn't just something that's happened, but we've thought about it. You know, we we state quite clearly on our submissions page that we can't contact, you know, authors. We don't have time to do that, really, to, um, you know, we will send um, a standard rejection or, you know, a receipt. But... But we just um, we just can't get in touch with people individually and, and we can't offer feedback because, you know, there's two of us. We've we've really got a very limited amount of time. Um, so from our position, if we're saying that to authors, I really don't feel that we should be saying but you can only submit to us. You know, it seems unfair, I think. Yeah, no, that's fair. So is there a difference, do you think, in the quality of the range of the manuscripts that you get sent or 
do you think because galley beggar has a very definite profile that you only get sent certain types of manuscripts certain types of genres or or you know you don't get sent books about gardening obviously but well, you'd be surprised, actually, what <laughs> comes in the door. Um, I'd say that maybe 75 to 80% are, even if they're books that we, you know, don't accept for whatever reason. Um, although it's mainly because, we, you know, we publish three to four books a year. Mm. Um, I'd say that most of them are, are the general kind of ballpark park of the ballpark of, of what we would look at or potentially publish as mm-hmm. a publishing house um, and then maybe there's another 20 percent that are a little bit kind of mm, i'm not i'm not sure that you've um read the submission guidelines or our or our books uh very thoroughly um but i try and be generous about that as well in the sense that um you know authors are desperate to be published and sometimes they can you know, just send it out into the ether without really thinking. So you've got a manuscript and it grabs you. What makes your publisher's senses tingle? I've been asked that a lot. And I, I, you know, I, I mean, I would say that most of our novels are quite, I hesitate to say intellectual because I think that that's quite an off-putting word, but they do tend to be books of ideas uh, as well as telling quite a gripping story um, in one sense or another, um, quite often unconventional. Um, but, so, but I wouldn't say that it's an intellectual process f- for us. I, I would say that it's much more of a gut instinct. I mean, you really start reading something and you do feel an almost physical thrill. So for example, with Selby and in fact with Lucy, but with Selby, I sent an email, Sam was upstairs in his office working and I sent him an email and I think the subject line was just stop stop you've got to come downstairs um and I insisted that anything you know I don't think he had any appointments that day but he had to stop work and we both had to read um so and I imagine you you get that as well yes I remember sitting being unable to leave a chair until I'd finished the novel it was so good and then obviously we had to publish it it is a physical response it is and it's a wonderful feeling but Um, there has to be I mean there has to be more rational responses too so what are the what do you try and make yourself look for in terms of how is this going to be sold what are the marketability so the first thing is always the book and that was one of our kind of founding principles that we have to love the book. So really the first thing we do is carry on reading. And at that point, Sam and I will both itch, be both itching to get our, our pens out. So we're, we're, there'd be little suggested tweaks here and there to certain sentences, or we might look up and say, what, well, what do you think about this character? Um, is this arc carrying through? Um, so they're, they're, the first conversation is editorial, I think, at, or maybe a better way of putting it is that it's a conversation as readers you know how you're responding to a book and then once we've got to that and once we really know that we're excited about something i in my role as publisher i think how who's going to respond to this how can i get it out there are are we the right people to do it because actually sometimes you can love a book but you can think 
I we're not the right press for this. Uh, we're, we're not going to be able to run with it in a way that somebody else is. Right, that's really interesting. So your your second point is, who shall we send it to? So you already are thinking about who's going to review it or who's going to puff it on big media, like a broadsheet newspaper or a book program on television or radio or on a YouTube a YouTube vlog. So that is already really, really, really important for books. Um, evolution into life that it has to be a marketable commodity we do try and think of that as a secondary thing so so the first thing is this is a book that we desperately want to publish and uh, we think it's wonderful and then the second thing is do we know who to send it to does it stand you know a good chance of 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 having uh, people in the media who are receptive and booksellers of course are incredibly important as well I would be slightly equivocal about that. It does have to be a marketable commodity, but I'd maybe row back a bit on that and say that I think Sam and I's position is that essentially we're just readers. You know, we're no better or greater a reader than anybody else. So if we're reading this book and thinking this book is absolutely brilliant, there have got to be other readers out there who are going to think the same thing. So in that sense, it's marketable, but only if you see it from the point of view of the market being avid readers. So, you know, um, so I, I'm, I'm just, um, you know, publishing is a commercial trade and we, we shouldn't kind of try and pretend otherwise. And, you know, the whole point of being a publisher is that you are telling a writer that you can find readers for their books. Uh, and that is very important. I do think that we have an element of luxury in that we have a large subscription base. So we already have 900 readers that we can send our author to before we even get to, are we going to be able to sell it through Twitter? Are we going to get broadsheet uh, publicity? Are we going to be able to get a table in Waterstones? Um, so, you know, that's that's a great position to be in, I think. Yeah, that is a big comfort. Persephone Books also have a massive subscription list, which is how they base their print runs, um, because they know the subscription list are going to buy buy the book. One, if you and Sam are the first readers, do you try the book out as a general rule on anybody else, or do you? Is it just you two deciding? Okay, now we move ahead. It's generally just us. Um... I did pass the submission along to my daughter the other day because I wanted to test it. I wanted to test it on her. She is also an avid bookworm. But largely it's just just Sam and I. I mean, we work very intensely together as well. So, And we know that it's that kind of um, energy that can help us to kind of push the book forward. When you, you consider know, how you're going to sell it or who you're going to sell it to, do you just consider the Anglophone world, like Britain, and Australia and obviously the United States and Canada or do you think instantly about translation possibilities or does that really depend on the rights you might want to secure yeah that um I think that really depends on what what rights you have I mean we do generally um try and ask for as many international rights as possible um because you know that is a way of making sure that 
the business itself is sustainable as well and you know we're um we we of course have to think about um about that um we had a great piece of advice early on from a great small press in new york called melville house and dennis there said you know your first duty as a publisher is to make sure that the publishing house is there tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) yes pay the bills um so we do and we work with international agents uh in order to try, you know, if we do have international rights. So so let's think about the contract. So when you're discussing your contract with the agent or the author, do you work with your own template or do you prefer the agent to supply their template? How, Which way do you go about that? We have our own template, which we have, you know, passed by uh, various uh, people who work in contracts. And we do try as much as possible to stick to that, but that's really to do with simplicity more than anything because we know <laughs> the ins and outs of that contract and the legalese and all of those things. Uh, it's very standard, you know, so there's nothing kind of that an agent or somebody in the industry wouldn't understand. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what for you would be the deal breaking conditions during a negotiation? Would it be something like the royalty level or would it be? date of final text or would it be something else in the small print that would make you think actually no we can't do this after all well that's really you know that's not really something that I've thought about I mean we do have to think very carefully about international rights because that is quite a key part of what allows us to keep going um for royalties we tend to I think that in terms of kind of industry standards, we offer very generous royalties. And we do that because we, you know, our advances are quite low. Uh, We offer a standard advance as well, across the board to all of our authors, because it would feel quite strange to us to be kind of, you know, offering X to such and such, but much lower to such and such. And then once you've got the contract signed, what's the next job? Is it metadata? Or is it getting the cover sorted or, or what? What's the next job? Oh, well, the next job will be editorial and, you know, meeting the author uh, as much as possible because, you know, we have our business, again, is quite intimate and, you know, we really want to make sure that the personal relationship is there. Uh, so it's really the in, the first thing is the intense kind of editorial stage with the book, which uh, Sam and I both absolutely love. Unfortunately, most of the authors that we've had really enjoy it as well. So, um, so. what are the movable parts in the publishing jigsaw? I'm thinking about the process when you're waiting for the manuscript, you've had all the editorial conversations, you know the final draft is almost with you. Are you now putting in things into place like booking the printer, sorting out the design Mm -hmm. slot? No, I, I well, I, again, it depends. But I, I think that what we do is we will get to a stage where kind of no, maybe at the penultimate draft, uh, or when an author is, has sent their redraft in, we'll get an idea from that what the publishing schedule might look like. So then we start to timetable. So we know, um, and as you're you'll know, Kate, there are certain things that you have to do 
by a particular time. So, for example, there's something called an advance information sheet, which uh, is very important in terms of distribution and in terms of give, uh, funneling out information to booksellers that this is a new book that, you, you know, the publishing house is going to be publishing. That has to be in six months before publication so so there are some dates that you can't you can't fiddle with and when you say in do you mean it has been sent to the bookseller the trade press or do you use a database so we um we have a wonderful distributor called turnaround publishing services and they handle all of that for us uh we work very very closely with them so we need to send the ai into them uh, six months before the book comes out and turnaround yeah and, and your distributor is your way into the book trade so all the bookshops or the people who sell books to the public connect with what information turnaround is feeding out from their their channels right so you've got the you've got the manuscript in it's there and then i suppose you must change hats and put the editorial hat back on and get on with the editing or do you outsource do you and sam do all the editing yourselves well, we do the uh, yeah, we we edit ourselves, but the later the pre-production edits, we have we work with a typesetter. Uh, the business is called Tetragon with Alex Billington, and uh, so the next stage when everybody's happy. Mm, let me think about this. So you've got your your manuscript in front of you. It's the one. Um, Depending on the author, some authors are like, okay, take it out of my hands. This is brilliant. Some authors you have to wrestle. You have to, uh, it's like a fight in the mud. And even though they kind of, you know, it's very exciting. Um, but we, we, we get the manuscript. It's generally, I will read it through again. Uh, at that stage with a kind of close reading just to any last last minute consistency uh you know um try and pick up any inconsistencies in spelling that sort of thing uh little tiny tweaks to characterization so but once that's done it goes over to our typesetter uh alex who will set about making the first galleys um, and he's wonderful. He tries to use uh, typefaces that are quite responsive to the story in the novel itself. So, for example, for Duck's Newburyport, which is very much in the modernist canon, we were very keen to use a typeface called Caslon, uh, which is a typeface that was used for Ulysses. Um, so we can nerd out. On various things like that with Alex and then something comes back which is called the the first galleys and uh, these are basically if you pick up any book uh, on your bookcase and flip through the pages those are from the galleys basically that's that's not word doc that's so that's been typeset especially so the layout on the page as printed is the layout that the galleys produce for the first time uh, and this may look like an easy job but I cannot tell you what a magician our typesetter is i mean he's just a marvel and so uh, it's one of those invisible you know things that you don't realize are so important until you see b bad typesetting um and then alex 
has uh, his own cohort of very good proofreaders. And depending on their tastes or their availability, the, those galleys will then, one, go to the proofreader, and two, go back to, to me and Sam and also to our author to read through. And then um, depending on the state of the galleys, also how anxious your author is to make certain changes, um, then corrections will be sent back. From the proofreader, it will generally be things like, uh, you know, uh, something needs compound hyphens, um, all of those sort of tiny things that are also very important, um, italicizing titles, that sort of thing. And are these paper galleys in the old-fashioned way, or are they on, on screen? Uh, so we generally use Acrobat and PDF. Uh, yeah, uh, we didn't when we started, actually. We worked from hand. Um, but those times seem to have moved on, actually. Mm. Um, I mean, it is a process that I'm very familiar with because I spent years doing this in academic publishing so when we started galley beggar it was one of the things that we were fairly confident you know that we understood that part of the process so you so you will have comments back from proofreaders comments back from the authors and all of those my job will be to compile those comments into a single manuscript and then send it back to alex our typesetter who will come back with the pristine print ready pdf Oh, only two stages then. You don't have more than well, one set of galleys. On a lucky day. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do when you're waiting for the final galley or the proof, <clears throat> the print file, effectively? Are you already talking to printers at that stage? Because by then you'll know the, the page extent. You'll know how long the book is going to be. Yeah. So we're doing generally three things. We, are, um, we generally use a UK printer called TPI. So I'll be in touch with our production manager there to start getting estimates and uh, making sure that we've got the right papers in. Um, we're actually three or four things. We'll be in touch with our graphic designer. We have a series design cover by and large. We almost always do that. Not, not always, but 99% but of the time. Um, we're also be in touch with so we'll be in touch with the printer about finished copies but we'll also be in touch with them about proofs uh so we in fact we'll be printing off proofs from the first galleys so while the, while the finished uh while the finished galleys are, are yet to kind of come together and how many proof copies do you generally produce for sending out as advanced reading copies well, for example, we're publishing a book in September called Beasts of England by Adam Barnes, and I ordered 150 uh, for uh, for that, but I've just had to order another 100. And our um, the number of proofs that we send out has actually gone up because one of the great things which lockdown gave us was a little bit of time where we weren't going to meetings or out and about, etc. And we really wanted to build up our relationship with booksellers. So we do send out a lot of proofs to individual booksellers now as well. Oh, that's great. So the bookshops get them as well as potential reviewers and the yeah. books editors of the time. Yeah. And, and so we'll be, we, we'll have pressed the, you know, print go on that uh, to have the proofs through. I will also be sending out the first emails 
to um to to reviewers to book desks etc while we're waiting for those to come in um so and you know that's probably going to be about uh four months before publication i would say something like that and when the the, the first proof copies arrive from the printer do, do they get sent out immediately depending on who wants them or is there a, an embargo a deadline no we do we do tend to send them out straight away but we will send them out in waves so uh we tend to yeah we we maybe have three pushes and i remember i got a review copy of more due um 2019 i think it was and you sent out special bookmarks there was a packet of sweeties because that was relevant to the plot and there was other little sort of delightful little bits and pieces as part of the review package was that a special thing or did you do you do that for every book we we never used to do that and then we we don't we are largely uh sustain ourselves entirely through uh what we do ourselves we get very little funding but we um we did get a small amount of funding to build up um kind of visibility with the book trade and so we decided that we actually we were going to use some of that to make these kind of special proofs with and extra postcards bookmarks and it, it's rather lovely for us to send them out as well because it feels like we're sending a little gift out to people we send a tissue wrap our, our books as well um but also we really want to know reviewers and booksellers to know that they are valued we really do value their time and you know the job that they do so it felt like a very nice thing but um also we love doing it so much that we now quite a sizable amount of our marketing budget goes towards doing that so for example again with beasts of england the proof copies um it's it's kind of a, a follow-on or homage to animal farm and what happens to Manor Farm uh, in, in our future, I, as well as a, you know, it, it's a wonderful book and it, it's furious about what has happened to Britain um, and it's scurrilous and uproarious. But we made some postcards. We used uh, old 1970s images of petting zoos and made some postcards uh, to go out with the books. And we also, we've sent out packets of frazzles <laughs> uh, so with a little sticker saying no no pigs were harmed in the making of these frazzles um so that's been um so we've done it actually ever since you i i don't think the Morgie was the first one that we did that for i think it was ducks new report um but yeah we do continue to do it, it it's quite an expensive thing but it's something that we okay. really mm -hmm. uh really enjoy doing and it seems to make people quite quite happy people seem to like receiving them so oh yes it felt like a treat it was very memorable to get this really is for me how exciting one of the things that covid did was completely destroy the traditional book launch um we we had a book lined up for a launch at hatchards the week that the lockdown was announced in britain so that didn't happen and we certainly moved on wholly to online book launches now that we're back able to meet again have book launches come back are book launches in-person book launches something that you've returned to well yeah we um we have um 
But we did start doing online launches and we felt that that was particularly important for our subscribers as well. Um, and we continue to do those. But for example, with, with Selby and after Sappho last year, she there was a lovely launch at Foils um, with Diana Suhami. Um, and I'm, I'm just, in fact, one of the things that I'm looking at today is, is working out what we can do for a London launch for Beasts of England. Um, so I, th- I think that they are, um, but it's really interesting to me to, on whether kind of audience participation levels have changed with kind of physical launches, because, um, particularly reading about, I think that the Edinburgh Book Festival is scaling back this year because, and that was one of the things that they cited that people, you know, it's hard to get as many people out to events, etc., as they as they need. Um, but we've never been particularly events focused, so I I can't really say how much that is the case. I don't know if you have any ideas on that, Kate. No, um, no, we've just stuck to online launches, and actually, some books we're not going to do a launch, which is you know, and for us it's difficult because our authors are dead in the main, so there's no one there to be the focus. So I think we're in a slightly diff- different position. Once the book's out, then what? How do you keep the momentum going for that book when you are also preparing other books to come through? Yeah, that's interesting. So um, we will send out something like 900 subscription copies here. Um, And we also have our own web shop. So we do get a lot of pre-orders. So we're maybe... Uh, get anything from one to 200 pre-orders for a book and we do tend to send flyers with those or a little leaflet thanking people for shopping with us or subscribing to us and saying if they enjoy the book and they and they are partial to social media uh, it would be brilliant to to if they could tweet about it or, you know, if they're not partial to that sort of thing, a recommendation to a friend would be brilliant because actually word of mouth is very important. Um, So trying to um, ask people without pressurizing them too much, I think, to kind of generate a conversation sounds a bit kind of yucky, but, you know, it's lovely to see people talking. It's what writers want, isn't it? People responding to their books and having a conversation about them. Um, So we do that. And, of course, you're waiting for reviews to come in with, you know, you're very, you generally know, um, most uh, book sets will let you know if a review is coming. So there's a dreadful nerve wracking. Well, it's nerve wracking on two fronts. If you've got reviews coming in, are they going to be good? Because you don't know beforehand. It's not something you know about. Um, And if you if you haven't been able to secure coverage, because a lot of books are published, um, you know, that that's quite, that's hard in its own way. So how can we get the word out in other ways? But also, you know, it's hard, I think, for the authors to see that, uh, you know, there's been no critical coverage. Can we talk about the, the disaster that Gally Beggar had to endure in 2019 when the collapse of a third-party distributor left you owed a lot of money which you needed to pay your bills. 
And I remember it as being a time of unexpected precarity and also generosity in the industry towards you. It was um, it was one of those things that was both horrible and wonderful by equal measure. And, uh, you know, I can't say anything that other than I wish it had never happened. Um, but, yeah, a, a particular books distributor um, went down the Swanee fairly quickly and we were um we were owed forty thousand pounds um for um for a book that we'd been asked to make especially for them. Um and we couldn't I mean it was it was awful. Poor poor Sam, my co director, was the first he kind of got wind of it quite early on in the day, I can't remember what day it was, but had held it back from me because he was hoping that, you know, something, some other news might come along and, you know, it, it might, there might be kind of a last minute kind of saviour, somebody who was going to buy the company. Although, you know, uh, in retrospect, that clearly wasn't going to happen, but it was very, very sweet of him. So he kind of carried that for a few hours. Yeah until something pinged onto my email, I think probably through the bookseller, uh, and I saw it. Um, and we literally, um, we stayed up all night that night uh, because we, we had had a wonderful year. Uh, one of our authors had been up for the Booker Prize and, uh, you know, brilliant things had happened, but it had also been an incredibly expensive year. And, you know, we'd, we'd, we needed to spend a lot of money and uh, being able to do that and survive into the future was contingent on those bills being paid. Um, so we really had our calculators and spreadsheets and, you know, scroll tables, like if we can do this, this would this happen if we don't, you know, and it was, I think we got to seven o'clock in the morning and it was like, we can't do it, but um, we can't survive this. And we can't survive this even if we just get a little bit. But also it was incredibly demoralizing uh, because it's, it's hard work being a small press. So it's just about, you know, and there are a lot of challenges, but it just felt like one punch to the gut too many. It was just awful. So this is where what next happened was so important, I think. So we were, we were, we were basically in bed upstairs, seven o'clock in the morning. And I said, we've got to do a GoFundMe. And Sam said, we can't, we can't do that. We can't ask that of people. Um, and, uh, cause it's not really kind of, you know, it's not something, um, that I don't know we were particularly comfortable with, although actually people people should do it if they need to. And I do not have that response to other people doing it because it's a much needed thing. So I think that, you know, finally we arrived at the fact that actually we needed to do it. Um, and a GoFundMe is you want to do crowdfunding. You were going to ask people. Yeah, but it's not. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a crowdfund, but it's a specific thing. You're not you're not trying to sell your books or anything. It's for donations, basically. And I Sam set up the page and literally wrote it in you know a cold sweat in fifteen minutes. Um, 
and also I think wrote a newsletter and I and I wrote an extra email or or used Sam's template and we did three things. We sent it to our um to our publicist database, just to everybody. We sent it to our subscribers and we sent it out in a newsletter. And finally we we put a tweet and it was a very kind of stark uh message it was basically we we need your help we we can't manage this and we i think that we started off asking for fifteen thousand pounds although that was not i think that was going to take us up still to negative equity but would take some of the pain away but we really needed 40 um and people gave us that within i think it was not even 24 hours it just um and actually i'm gonna i feel quite tearful <laughs> i still i just can't thank people enough uh it was just incredible and people in the industry were incredible uh you know people were getting out articles about it the bookseller were amazing and it was just the most wonderful thing i'm not surprised it was quite a day i remember twitter it was full of it 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 was it was amazing and um it saved us financially but it also saved us emotionally yeah because it would you know it it really was a terrible we we felt quite kind of existentially at the end of it mm. so that that outpouring and the messages that people were sending it was so supportive because it could have been any of us yeah I think so. I mean, we do love our little, you know, it's only a little publishing house, but we love it passionately. And we love our writers. And we love our readers, you know, and and all of those booksellers and people who help us so that everybody gave us the opportunity to carry on and to carry on publishing. Writers that we, we are part of our family, because that's the way we think of it already, but also new writers, a wonderful thing. And here we are, you know, four years on and I think it illustrates that when you are a publisher, it's not just a business. It's what you do because you love it. And that if, if that ever gets taken away, then it becomes a mechanical routine. But good publishing is because you have the passion for it. And if something threatens that, then your, your emotions are absolutely involved. 